Alright, so as we uh, want to look at chapter 3, we've already started chapter 3 of the book of Ruth uh, last week, but we uh, want to kind of finish it and, and kind of fill in some of the blanks of what we dealt with a little last week. I did afterwards realize that I had mentioned uh, in, in speaking last week that this would be our final week in Ruth. And uh, when I got home, I started studying. I thought, uh-oh, that was mistaken. The reason that happened, which I'll give you a little insight of how I work. Um, I'm always, I try to stay two weeks ahead in my studies. Because uh, you never know, something might come up and you might, not, you might have a hard time staying like, like you need to in a week. But more so because if I don't stay ahead, then... You know, I might end up saying something that later on I've got to say, well, I, you know, I, I don't have to go backtrack on that. But if I can get a couple of sermons ahead, then I have a better understanding of the context I'm in now, right? So I think that it's been helpful. So in my mind, I had studied chapter four of Ruth, and uh, so I was thinking that's next week, but really it's not. So that's kind of a little insight of what, why sometimes I, it's not just, you know, because I'm getting old, but sometimes it's because that's what I just got through studying. But uh, last week, as we uh moving through the book of Ruth, we saw that Boaz set his love on Ruth before she knew him. And uh, similarly, God set his saving love on those who he chose before the foundation of the world. Um, then his, this love doesn't wish good for us. One of the, one of the most difficult, and that's, I guess, why uh, D.A. Carson wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Uh, because to understand God's love, how it is displayed biblically, you've got to, you've got to think it through. And it's not that difficult, but we like, man likes to just flatten God's love down so that it's just, uh, he loves everybody the same, and that's it. And we don't even do that, right? So we, we, we like to make God's love much less complicated than even our own love is. So one thing we need to understand about that is that this love doesn't wish good for us, but doesn't just, I guess I should have said, wish good for us, but determined to justify us and bring us into glory. He will lose those who we love in a saving way. So God's love, saving love, uh, accomplishes what it sets out to do. It is not just something that he has toward somebody in an indiscriminate way. Like Boaz, Christ has the means to redeem and the inclination to do so. That's one of the things that we dealt with and we'll maybe do a little bit more of that today as well. So in Ruth so far we have seen the need of redemption and we've seen the ones who need redemption. We've been introduced to the one who is both, as we just said, powerful enough to redeem but also has the inclination to redeem. In chapter 4, we're going to see someone who has the inclination to redeem, but in, in, I think in a sense did not have the power to redeem. Uh, and, and maybe a case could be made that didn't have either. Uh, but he'll be in the contrast to Boaz. So in chapter 3, though, we see Naomi put a plan into operation. And that is a plan to get Boaz to redeem not really just Ruth, but in one sense her, because the land is a big part of this redemptive process. So she doesn't wait for Boaz to make the first move, but she has Ruth to make a proposal of sorts. And of course, we know she sends Ruth at, at after Boaz at the harvest time. 
Boaz is asleep in the threshing floor. She sends Ruth to go uh, to uncover his feet. We'll talk about that in a moment. Lay down there. And then when Boaz awakes, to basically ask him to redeem them. And so that has caused some interesting commentary as far as how, what does that mean? Was she right to instigate this? What, what, what's this plan, a good plan, and so forth? So it's caused a lot of debate among the commentators as to her motives, Naomi's motives, whether she was right to do that. And we'll try to sort some of that out today. Um, it's clear to Boaz that he has, we, we, I mean, it's clear to, to Naomi that Boaz has a strong interest in Ruth. Uh, and he's made that very clear in the, in the way he has treated Ruth and, and the gift that he's given her and so forth. Um, so, uh, we can say that she's merely doing some proactive cooperating here, you know, uh, in, in getting Boaz to, uh, go ahead and make that decision to redeem them. And the thing to keep in mind in this book is that our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, is being foreshadowed, um, and so, as well as those who need to be redeemed are foreshadowing us, right? And so, this is more than just a love story with no higher purpose. This is a look at Christ as the church. And if we don't keep that in mind, you're gonna we'll see here I think commentators can sometimes go off the rails a little bit as they're they're forgetting. As I, I mentioned before the, the professor we had in college who saw the book of the Song of Solomon as a manual for courtship and marriage. Import the uh course was called courtship and marriage so in him he's trying to fit our understanding of courtship and marriage which if you think about it if we have that that can be somewhat cultural to the game into the song of solomon and this is the whole point of the book which i think it should be a, a look at the love between christ and the church and reduces it to something that uh that i don't think really it kind of may help get you off track so we might have some questions about the story that aren't answered to our satisfaction. Uh, you know, because it is odd. We'll talk about, you know, some of the things that's going on here are a little strange. Even in the Jewish culture, some of these things weren't necessarily cultural. So she's kind of doing her own thing in, in some of it. Um, but if we remember the spiritual lesson, I think it's much more obvious as to what's going on here. Notice the first verse where Naomi says, that she is seeking Ruth's rest. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Out of heart, so that they could live on it, because the land is the ultimate inheritance and reward of the old covenant. So she says, you know, she's looking for a way for Ruth to find rest. Um, it, it, I think a, a clear type of the coming of Christ in, in securing our salvation. We rest not in the land, not in any one location on earth. We rest in Christ, in his work. We find our eternal inheritance. And so that's why every 50 years the land would always revert back to whoever originally owned it because it was to be seen, I think, as our internal, eternal inheritance. And, uh, so, you, you don't, you can't lose your, um, 
that. You can't lose heaven. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why we see these laws set up as they are. The old covenant was to settle them in the land that they might be fruitful. And so when the new covenant, we are joined to Christ, we find rest in Christ, and in that we find fruit. And Jesus speaks of that in John 15, right? I am the vine, you are the branches, and if you abide in them, you're going to bear fruit. So we, we kind of see the the uh, the antitype of a lot of the things that we read in the law. Now, author Pink, uh, the commentator author Pink, sees Naomi as representing the Holy Spirit as she brings us, or in this case, Ruth, to Christ. She tells her where Boaz is to be found, and she tells her how to approach him. She says, wash yourself. We think about when we approach Christ, right? We, we repent of our sins. Uh, she, uh, she says, ask, uh, Boaz to cover you. Uh, we, we, uh, if, you know, when we go to Christ, we ask for salvation by faith to come to Christ. And so I think there's certainly something to be said about that. I, she, you know, it, it's not anything interesting to go through the plot, but she certainly you can see the work of the Holy Spirit illustrated there. But it's interesting that some commentators go the opposite way. In other words, you know, Arthur Pink, maybe he saw too much, but some would maybe argue, but I, mean, I don't think I'd argue that here anyway. But some go the other way, and they say, well, isn't Naomi being faithless? They see Naomi as telling Ruth to, to put on perfume and make herself attractive, to get Boaz to agree to redeem her. Um, some even think that uh, Naomi is hoping that Boaz will compromise himself by finding a young woman laying next to him at night and so, in a sense, be forced to marry Ruth or something. So they just kind of go real, I think, off the rails a little bit and just see the worst of all of this instead of, uh, you know, trying to see what's going, what's really going on here. And, of course, the problem is, and we talked about these things before, there is a certain level of intrigue and sexual overtones that danger the whole situation. I mean, again, this is not a Hebrew custom that, that, that a woman would go at night where the guy's sleeping to do all this. And so, uh, yeah, it is, a, it is it, there is something going on here that, that what's going on? You know, that makes us ask those questions. And so on one level, advising a young woman in her 20s, perhaps, to put herself in that situation could seem like bad advice. And we would say, certainly today in our culture, right, we would say that is bad advice. I would never in any way advise someone to do anything like this. Right? The question then is, if are we to see this as just a lot of unfortunate mistakes in judgment, is this just a lesson on morality, which again is I think how some commentators, all they're doing is every action and word, they're saying, is that a good thing or not? Well, but you could the problem is you miss the overall thing of what's going on. Is it a lesson in morality? Are we to sit here and only look at whether she should have done this or not? Or are we to see the wonderful picture of how we uh, are redeemed in Christ, right? And even if we look at this as an attempt of seduction, Boaz comes through with flying colors, but then we're left kind of seeing the church is coming to Christ with unworthy motivation, so it's the whole typology falls apart. And I don't see anywhere in this book where anything 
any of these people are interested in anything but doing the right thing, really. So, we have faced, again, these passages before where if we look at this, and this is part of the problem, this is part of the reason why it's important to have a good relationship or understanding of the covenant relationship with each other, the old covenant, the new covenant. Um, If we, the covenant theologian, the Presbyterian, for instance, as you kind of know what we're talking about here, sees the Jew in the Old Testament, lost or saved, by the way, if if they're under the Old Covenant, they would say they are in the church of the Old Testament. They're in the church. Just like we're in the church, uh, that's a church in the Old Testament, we're the church in the New Testament, but it's the same basic thing, which is one of the ways that they justify you can have lost people in the church, it's okay. Because in the Old Testament, you had Jews who were saved, Jews who were not. And so they don't make a whole lot of distinction, right? So you can understand why they go, they see Naomi and Ruth doing things, they're judging them as we might judge someone in the church, their actions in the church. Well, of course, that's the problem. These are not church members. They're not in the Old Testament church. There was no church in the Old Testament. They were under the Old Covenant. So we got to be real careful about holding them in the same accountability as we would in our present day in the uh, life that we have, what a church is, how we are to conduct ourselves in the house of God. If there's differences in the Old Testament. So again, you can kind of see that when I read these commentators, you know, they, they, they are treating them just like they would one of their own members in their own church. And they did, I think it said they just get sidetracked. Anyway, we learned later that Boaz already knew that he was a near kinsman because he knew that there was one who was more closely related to her than he was in verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. You know, uh, Ruth has asked him to redeem her, basically by marrying her. Um, and it's true, I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. So, you know, Boaz knew the situation. He's not surprised by any of this. And I don't think Naomi, I think Naomi realized that. And so, some have suggested that Naomi is reminding him of his duty. She, she's obviously kind of pushing the issue a little bit. And the Bible does not present that in a negative way. And again, this is, if, if we just reduce this to a study of morality, then we say, well, I guess it's okay for women to uh, propose to the man because, look, Ruth's doing it. Well, yeah, but it's not. That's got nothing to do with uh, the, you know, what, that, that, that whole situation. Um, so instead of seeing something inappropriate in Ruth making herself presentable to Boaz, Maybe we should be reminded that this is how one should approach a holy God. You know, you know, she cleans herself up, right? Well, even a priest would not dare go into the temple to serve without washing himself, right? It was a death penalty if you dare approach God without cleansing yourself. And, and in the gospel, over and over again, we're called to repent and believe. You do not approach God carelessly. Yes, the Lord is the one ultimately who cleanses us from sin. But we are to uh, take 
His holiness seriously in our lives. Whether we're approaching the Lord for forgiveness of sin and conversions, that conversion is what John and Jesus both preached of the gospel of repentance. Whether it's how we start and end each day in confessing our sins and, and understanding our desire to be holy, this is just how a sinner approaches God, right? And so we can see her doing what we would expect in a sense. And if Naomi is a type of the Holy Spirit, then it's just merely reminding us that the Holy Spirit's work is to do what? To make us holy. It's the Holy Spirit. That's not, I don't think, just a reference to the fact that the Spirit of God is holy. And yet, the Father is holy, Jesus is holy, the Spirit is holy. But it, I think it's a description of what His purpose is in the church. And of course, last week we also saw in verse 5, Ruth has a very meek spirit in all this, which is, again, a way that we would expect to approach God. Remember where it says, uh, all that you say, I will do. This is uh, how she uh, respects those who are instructing her. So although Ruth is approaching Boaz, she is doing it in a passive way, we might say. She uh, uncovers his feet and she lays there and waits for him either to accept or reject her. And this is primarily a story of the need of redemption and a story of the one who redeems. And so, again, we've got to be careful about trying to find every little doctrine of conversion and salvation here. Um, but we know that God chooses us not because we have washed ourselves up and convinced him of what a good catch we are. So we don't see in Ruth preparation here that, that we have to somehow get ourselves to a situation where God will accept us because that will never happen. But we do uh, approach him in a sense of repentance. He knows the kind of sinner we are and it's his grace that loves to save us anyway. So I think the picture here is the one of availability. She's, she's at his mercy, right? And that's kind of what we are. We, we can't demand that God saves us. All we can do is repent and believe and God has promised that in that, he will save us. So she doesn't demand, she asks. In verse 7, uh, we see there's no evidence that this was some kind of, uh, in reading this, there was, there's no evidence from the Jewish standpoint that this was an existing ritual where she would uh, go and she would uncover his feet. That, that That's not something that Jews say, oh yeah, that's something that they did back then. Uh, it, it, in all, all likelihood was she did that because, you know, if, I think we think about our own experience. What happens when uh, if your feet got uncovered while you're sleeping? It wakes you up, right? It, it, it makes you uncomfortable in some way. And it's probably what's going on here. And so uh, he wakes up and then uh, she says, spread your, uh, we, we talked about this, spread of your garment over me, spread your skirt over me. She basically used that whole scenario. She's laying there uncovered, and so she's asking him to marry her, to, to bring her into his household, to redeem her. Well, we have referred to Ezekiel 16, 8. Maybe you've not read that. I would certainly encourage you to read that chapter. It's a great chapter. But notice here the same language, the same words. Now, the chapter is God passes by and sees Israel, and the first time he sees her, she has just been delivered. She's uh, the umbilical, umbilical cord is still attached. She's bloody. 
but all of the afterbirth all over uh, is a really, uh, you know, kind of a bloody picture, and uh, she's just been thrown out to the field to die. She, she's just kind of an orphan, and, and not, you know, and, and so he cleans her up, and, you know, kind of takes care of her, feeds her, and, and, and the child, his baby, and then he waits until, then here we get to the first age, she has reached adulthood. She has, she's at childbearing years, so therefore she's at marrying age, right? And I pass by you again the second time, and behold, you're at the age of love, and I, I spread the corner of my garment over you. So there you see, uh, what, what, maybe using the language of Ruth to remind Israel what he's talking about here. But it's the same word, and so you could, you could easily have said, I spread my wings over you, which is a, a language of salvation and marriage. It covered your nakedness, and I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you. Again, a, a, this is marriage language. It says the Lord, and you became mine. That's what's going on here. It's the same idea. And of course, later on in 16, uh, God starts to accuse Israel that when you became, I made you beautiful, and then you used your beauty to become a whore. And that's why he basically gives her a, a bill of divorce, Israel. And the covenant comes to an end. But you see, I think the, the, the whole, how all these themes are, are being uh, brought together. Uh, no doubt Abraham is Israel in its infancy. And what do we learn about Abraham? Well, he's an adult. He's not an adult. He was an idolater. So he sees, you know, Israel's beginning was not particularly special. They were idolaters just like everybody else. But the Lord loved her and brought her to a point where uh, he could marry her and, and beautify her. And that happened, I think, at, at Mount Sinai. That when he gave her the covenant, they entered into this union, as it were, and then first you know what Israel did with all that. So it's just a great, uh, very stark illustration of Israel's relationship with God. Hmm. So there was an Eastern custom that to cover someone with a cloak was kind of like a marriage proposal. That wouldn't fly well in Western society where women don't want to be protected. They don't want to see them be seen as someone who comes under the authority, care, whatever of any man. Uh, but where people are concerned about doing things God's way, it, it works out okay. And so the word wings or skirt here is the same as we read here in Ezekiel. Uh, protection in marriage is the obvious meaning. And it was probably wise to lay the duties of the kinsman redeemer on him. This would probably work better than, you know, in other words, if, if Ruth is seeking a husband, in one sense is really what she's after, a husband, because redemption would come with that. What she's doing here, actually, and again, this maybe shows the wisdom of Naomi's plan, is someone said, well, she could have put an ad in the local gazette that said something like single Moab woman widowed childless with a mother-in-law seeks a wealthy Bethlehem businessman with a view to marriage must love mother-in-law well, that probably would uh, not get you uh, married um, so you know we don't come to, to the cross touting our uh, good works, our good points right, that's not going to do any good so what uh, Ruth tells Naomi tells Ruth to do is to lay the claims of the law on him, in a sense. Uh, 
please be my redeemer. You're at his mercy. And, and the whole context shows, I think, that this is all done under the provisions of the law. We have read uh, in Leviticus and Numbers, the Levite laws that were done for this very purpose. Um, this, it, remember, because Jesus was born under the law, the cross is, is everything about it speaks about uh, how Christ fulfilled the law, hanging on a tree, fulfilled the law, made him someone that would bear the sins of somebody else. So it was all done. It wasn't just, you know, God had to save us somehow, so, you know, you know I'll just do it this way. No, it was all uh, done systematically according to the Old Testament in a way that uh, got things done. It's not just a shot in the dark, hoping that someone's going to take him up on his offer. He was saving his love people that he loved from eternity. So she then lets him know that he is a near kinsman, a lawful redeemer, and of course he knew that. Uh, there's an interesting chapter in Isaiah 59, we'll read part of it here. But notice again, in the context of what we're studying in Ruth, how the Lord presents himself to Israel. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Down to verse 16. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. I, I kind of like that, because it, it, it's like Boaz uh, looks around, and is there anybody else who can redeem? Well, there's one over there who had the right. He goes to him as we'll see next week and says, well, you're going to redeem her. And he says, no. So here the Lord looks around, and in one sense, in an ultimate sense, uh, when God is going to save mankind, who else is going to do it? Well, there's only one person who's qualified to do it, he who is both God and man, right? One who has perfectly kept the law, one who is righteous, but one who is a near kinsman, one who is a human being. And so, the Lord looks around and says, well, there's no one but me. And he, uh, in his, up, his righteousness of hell, and of course it is the righteousness of Christ that is uh, ultimate salvation. So he put on righteousness as a breastplate, again, speaking to the, the incarnation of Christ, the, the life that he lived, the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance, the clothing wrapped himself in the real as a cloak. Again, a lot of this is, is expanded on in the New Testament. Then down to uh, 18 through 20. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the post and to horrendous repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising of the sun. And he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives, and a redeemer will come to Zion. So again, I, I read that to remind ourselves the context here. When we say salvation, redemption is part of that. And so you see these things uh, spoken by one who is the ultimate redeemer. So Ruth is pointing us to that. Um, so the whole point was to pay a price that the redeemed couldn't. Um, we have seen in the law that if a family member found himself in such debt that he 
he was sold into slavery. Sometimes you were sold into slavery because you owed a debt you could not pay. His kinsman redeemer could pay to free him. And that's an aspect of redemption. Uh, redemption in the sense here we see with Ruth, with the land and heart. Uh, that was another way uh, that you could redeem somebody. It's the same basic problem. You've got yourself in a situation you can't pay, right? So you see why it's such a good illustration of salvation. So here, family mortgage, family property was mortgaged, and uh, so the kinsman redeemer could regain it for the family. And underlying this was the fact that all family members were God's servants living on his land, as we talked about before. Um, and so ultimately they could be, they would be at the year of Jubilee, not only would your, your land return to you, but if you had sold yourself into slavery, you were free. So in other words, redemption took place one way or another, uh, through the law, uh, if, if a redeemer couldn't be found to do it, like we're seeing here in Ruth. And so the blessings of God were intricately related to the land that God had parceled out to his people. You had to be living in the land to be living under the blessings of the covenant because that's what the whole thing was about. It was, it, Israel, as I said before, was under that covenant brought into a land to enjoy that that was their inheritance, to be fruitful for the Lord. And so the principle underlying the Levite laws was the importance of the continuity of the family line. Not only was life in the land sacred, but the continuity of the family's generation to participate uh, in the land until the promised one would come back, would come to redeem them. So, and part of all this in the land was to be a people, to be living there, ultimately through whom, that's the Abrahamic covenant, it was through one of them that the Messiah was going to come. So it was tied in to the future as well. That's why, and that's why Ruth here isn't content, and Naomi isn't content just to squeak by. They, they were looking for someone to give, to continue the line so that they would have, they would be able to, to keep the land. Every woman looked forward to having a son, hoping that he would be the promised one. And so to emphasize the continuance of one seed speaks to the fact that our inheritance cannot be lost. The inheritance is not supposed to be lost if everything worked out right. So, now, that was, that was life under the covenant. There were a lot of other things that were going on, obviously, but the land was the big, the big, in, in a sense. And of course, once the old covenant came to an end, which it did, because Israel would not keep it, eventually God just said, okay, that's it, and spew them out of the land. Then, think about it, the inheritance no longer is the same. Because, the, because it was, if there's no covenant, then there's no inheritance. That was part, that was the, the main goal of the covenant. Hebrews 8 says that the old covenant has become obsolete. And again, it's not that the law was bad, it's just that Christ came and fulfilled it. it, it that was the end of the law of Christ. So the old law, the old covenant is obsolete and it says has passed away. So, and I'm just kind of throwing this out for your consideration. Uh, kind of how Rob's going to do the old uh, um, Twilight Zone stuff. 
this is for your consideration. Uh, if anyone, why would anyone expect the physical blessings of the inheritance of the land to continue if the old covenant no longer exists? See what I'm saying? If the old covenant is gone, then the goal of the old covenant, which is Israel in the land, no longer and yet you've got people saying today that, oh, we're not under the old covenant, yet that promise to the Jews to inherit the land still abides. Well, no, it's only, it was part of the covenant. Perhaps the covenant is, is, is obsolete, has passed away because that, the, that piece of Palestinian rock over there really is no goal. The goal is to be with Christ forever. That's the, that was what the old inheritance always pointed to, right? Not not that land, literal land, but the land in heaven, uh, not made with hands. And, and so, you know, just, just stop and think about it for a while. It would make sense. It, it, and rightly so, because if the, if the Palestinian rock is the goal for all Jews, that, that's, that's what because that's what people say, at least the dispensation will say, that God promised they're going to have that land, and yes, they've had it, but not like they should. The day's coming where it's going to be the best. That's all, that's that's the goal of every Jew. How many Jews are really going to benefit from it? A few Jews, at the end of the time, whenever it happens, a minuscule amount of Jews, uh, all the Jews of the Old Testament, well, I would say they got it, uh, but all the Jews of the New Testament era who have, have died in their sins, uh, none of them, none of them got the ultimate goal that people keep looking for. Just a few are going to benefit from it. And so my, my point then is, does it really matter? If that's the case, if, if, if the land over there in modern day Israel is ultimate inheritance for a Jew. Most never really got it. Never benefited from it. So it's just like it really falls flat to me. That's what we're, the goal that the Jewish people have. But if it's Christ, then every Jew who, who accepts their Messiah gets real inheritance. You get an eternal inheritance. Not just a few years, you know, a thousand years. Is, it's just a drop in the bucket, right? Uh, if, but if you have Christ, you have him forever. All things are yours. You see that in First Corinthians here, uh, pretty soon. So I just, it's just something to think about and just kind of put things in perspective. So here we have two women. Neither had children. They didn't have land. They're on the brink of being forgotten, losing everything, but a Redeemer steps in and brings them into security. Verse 10 says, there is praise by Boaz that Ruth has pursued a higher love than just fleshly things. It's blessed are you because you did not chase after the younger men. Uh, you recognize that there was something more important than that. And, and you kind of see, I think, obviously Boaz is probably old enough that someone Ruth's age wouldn't automatically see him as a candidate for being a husband. But he's saying there's something motivated you rather than the flesh, rather than the here and now. Rather than having a good time, uh, you chose the better thing. And so I think, again, a good deal of 
illustration of what it is to come to Christ. Then Boaz, in verse 14, Boaz's character is seen. He's concerned for their testimony. He tells her to, to get up and leave without anybody or anybody to see them. Um, people need to see that we are concerned for our testimony. And, uh, and again, that, that's to kind of just use that to go off into that idea of our testimony. Uh, I think that's something the Bible is very clear about. That it does matter what people think about us. And by that, I don't mean that we are to be overly concerned that they like us, if they think we're nice. If that means that we have to compromise our faith, what they need to see is that we love the Lord more than anything. We want people to like us. We want to be likable. Uh, that's, I think, part of just being a good human being is to be likable if, if we can. But I've seen people go off the rails, and I think we see it today, where we think that the, that the church must be liked and respected by the world, or we can't reach them for Christ. And so we compromise and we say, look, the things that you're doing, we, we, we ignore the fact that the Bible calls that sin, and we embrace that and say, it's okay, God loves you anyway. And so instead of them seeing people committed to Christ, they see people committed to them. But we, 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 it's a gospel issue because now we're saying that the very things that, uh, that Christ had to die for that will send you to hell, uh, that God loves you anyway. None of that matters. And so we, we, we can get ourselves in all kinds of trouble. Evangelism begins with a faithful testimony, which is a holy life. And I don't mean that we are to walk around with a holier-than-thou attitude. That we are to present this idea that, well, we can't hardly do anything, you know, and being a Christian means you can't do anything and all that kind of stuff. But we are saved to be conformed to the image of Christ primarily, right? Because God um, created man in the image of God. That, that's kind of like the big thing that, that Genesis 1 and 2 talk about. We're created in the image of God. And the fall, we, that image was marred. Wasn't eradicated, but it was destroyed, right? So what is salvation? It is restoring the image of God in us, which is how to be conformed to the image of Christ, because that is the image of God. So that's what it's all about. It is God restoring us to be image bearers. That is to look like God, to uh, to to be what God meant us to be. Now. And this is extra. If my identity is wrapped up not in being like God, but in being whatever I happen to be sexually attracted to, so my identity for so many people is something that is going to end at death. Because no matter whether you are you function properly in that area or whether you, you were messed up in that area, at the end of the day, all sexual activity ends at death, right? Because that's not something that you need and want to do in eternity. So if my identity is wrapped up in that which ends at death, there couldn't be a more rebellious, sinful attitude, one that denies the whole point of being a human, which is to be conformed to the image of God, not to be conformed 
to some aspect of physicality that uh, is just temporary destructive. You see, you see the, you see why this, the, the issues we face today, strike at the very heart of what being a human is all about. It strikes at the heart of being able to worship God. It, it destroys everything, and it's so. It's so much more than just a matter of choice, a matter of lifestyle. It doesn't matter. No, if you believe the Bible, it couldn't be more important. Therefore, it couldn't be more important that a Christian says no to these things that come to the world. So our desire is to see people saved. And that means to see their lives changed by Christ so that they now live holy lives unto the Lord. I, I don't... My first desire is not to fill this church up, and believe me, I don't, I don't have many desires that more than that. But I want to see people saved, and again, not just because I know they're going to hell if they don't, and that's certainly true. Why would you want to see that? I want to see people's life change who are out there in, in, the, in the misery of sin, in the meaning of sin, uh, in a, their idolatrous. Uh, life, whatever they're doing, I want to see that their life change and now they're worshiping Christ. I want to see them being brought back to where they should be. I don't want to see them saved so they don't go to hell. I want them to be where they should be. And I think that's, that's what part of Christianity is all about. And that should be our aims. And if we act like their rebellious lifestyle is okay, then what in the world are you being saved for? What's the, what's the whole point? So life is all about relationships, but it's first about relationship with Jesus and the triune God. It's not about you having relationships with people out, out there in the world that transcend your relationship with Christ. That, that becomes more important than your relationship with Jesus. So then finally in this chapter, we see Boaz, the words of comfort. He basically says here, I think it's in verse 18. Well, yeah, he's verse 13. Remain tonight in the morning. Well, that's, that's daily again. Uh, verse 11. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer, me, nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do so. But if not, if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you right now until morning. So, it's words of comfort. It says, Ruth, uh, you know, again, we're, we're, we got, you know, all, all illustrations break down a little bit. It's not that Jesus says, well, I'm going to try to redeem you, and as long as I can talk Satan into it or whatever, you know, I'll, I'll get it done. No, this is Ruth, this is Boaz living in the real world. Says there's one closer than me, but if he refuses to redeem you, you can rest assured I will do what you requested. So take it easy. I'm going to take care of this. And so here we, we kind of run out of time, but let me just read these two verses here. And I think this is what we see is the steadfast love of Boaz that I'm going to get this done one way or another. In Luke nine fifty one. When the day is too near for him to be taken up, I believe this is, of course, a reference to, in other words, Christ knew his work was about to take place. And 
so forth. It says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. In other words, he knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. But because of his love for the Lord, for the Father's love for us, he set his face to go to redeem us, and nothing was going to stop him from going to Jerusalem, no matter what the cost, which of course is going to be crucifixion there. And then I think this is also referred to in John 6, 39, 40. That this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So I'm thankful that like Boaz, the Lord is committed to seeing it through I shall someday be with him in glory because he has committed himself to do that work. And I think you see a little bit of that perhaps in this as well. Alright, we'll stop there to pray that you would help us to be able to uh, meditate on these things and to uh, incorporate them into our thinking, into the way we uh, behave and the way we interact with others. It may have be a good day where we are built up in the faith. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name.